following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. The sermon this morning is the second in the sermon series entitled Life in Christ, which is kind of a follow-on to previous sermon series about the teachings and the parables of Jesus. Today we are looking at Jesus' teaching about forgiveness. Last Sunday in the Orthodox Church, it was a Sunday that Orthodox Christians call Forgiveness Sunday. Each year on Forgiveness Sunday, they read the passage that we heard from Matthew 6, and specifically the verses where Jesus says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This was being read last Sunday in all Russian and Ukrainian Orthodox churches. In response, President Zelensky of Ukraine said in a video posted last Sunday night, We will not forgive the shootings of unarmed people, the destruction of our infrastructure. We will not forgive. He went on to suggest that Russians, Russia itself would surely face a, a, a day of judgment. And he said, God will not forgive, not today, not tomorrow, never. The gospel message about forgiveness will be our focus this morning. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. In Matthew chapter 6, just prior to those verses I quoted, Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer, which includes a major line about forgiveness. When I was growing up in the Presbyterian church, I learned to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Methodists generally use the form, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, a wordier form. Or I once had a church where the congregation preferred the, the, the phrasing, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Any of those formulations would be a, a correct rendering of the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. But the translation that is actually closest to the original Greek is the phrase, forgive us our debts. The Greek word ophelema means debt, although it can also be used to refer to one's sins. The idea of debt can help us to grasp what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of sin and forgiveness. If you were to think of who is the biggest sinner in the world today, you'd very likely think of Vladimir Putin. He is a man engaging in horrific wrongdoing. It's important to name the wrongdoing and stand clearly against it. This past week, there was news about two internationally renowned Russian orchestra conductors, Valerie Gergiev, who was uh, conducting the Munich Philharmonic, and Tugan Sokiev, who directed the orchestra in Toulouse, France, as well as the Bolshoi in Moscow. They had both been pressed to take an explicit stand condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They refused. Gergiev, a friend of Putin, was then fired, and Sokiev resigned. Sokiev complained, arguing that he should not have been pushed to choose a side, and that musicians are ambassadors of peace, which in many ways, of course, they can be. 
But being a peacemaker does not mean silence in the face of grave injustice. It means speaking out for what is right. Almost two centuries ago, James Russell Lowell wrote the words of that hymn that we just sang. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Now is that moment for people all around the world. At the same time, in this context, it is especially easy for us to fall into the illusion that the sinners of this world are those others out there who are engaging in great wrong. If we are on the good side, that makes us good, does it not? And if we compare ourselves to Vladimir Putin, we look really good. As long as we define sin as terrible wrongdoing, we end up with a distorted view of ourselves. Because although we have all done wrongs, it's pretty easy to find people in the world who are doing a lot more wrong than we have ever done. Sin does, of course, include wrongdoing. But the biblical picture of sin as debt gives us a different perspective and enables us finally to see our real spiritual standing. The Bible makes clear that God has given us everything. God has given us our life, our abilities, our blessings, every moment of time we have here on this earth. In return, we owe God faithfulness and obedience to God's call, that we should use what we have in accordance with God's ways in fulfillment of God's purposes. But so often we forget God and we fall short of God's call. We end up doing things we should not do and we fail to do things that we should do. Our shortfall in life is our debt to God. And this is essentially what the Bible means by sin. Sin is the distance between who we ought to be as God's people and how we actually live When sin is understood as debt, it becomes clear that we can never repay God because everything that we do rightly is what we ought to be doing anyways. At the same time, we keep falling short in additional ways. Indeed, if you consider the whole course of your life and all the ways that you have fallen short of God's call, you very likely find yourself looking at a staggering debt. As United Methodist Bishop Gerald Kennedy once put it, if there is only the debt and the demand for payment in full, I am doomed. I cannot pay. It is this basic situation that Jesus describes in the parable that we heard this morning, the parable of the unmerciful servant. The parable begins, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the reckoning, One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Right here, Jesus' listeners would have gasped. A talent was a unit of money, a very large unit used at the time mainly by government entities that were calculating taxes for entire regions. And even in that respect, the figure of 10,000 talents is off the charts. The average daily wage for a worker in that day was a denarius, 
there are 6,000 denarii in one talent. In other words, a talent represented about 20 years' wages for the average person. This guy owes 10,000 talents. How could he rack up that much debt? Well, the question is immaterial because Jesus' parables are not literal accounts about historical people. They are figurative stories, and the eye-popping sum of 10,000 talents is meant to signify the kind of debt that we each owe to God, a debt that encompasses our entire life. In a previous sermon series, I noted that Jesus' parables are designed to shake people up to move them to new insight and finally new action. With our usual way of thinking about sin as terrible wrongdoing, we can easily feel comfortable in our own righteousness relative to the great criminals out there in today's world. But this parable changes our viewpoint entirely. We are like this servant standing before the king with a debt he could not pay. The parable continues, And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. Jesus describes here what would typically happen in the ancient world if someone owed a huge debt and could not pay. The person would be sold into slavery, along with the person's entire family if necessary, and the person's possessions, of course, and the proceeds from the sales would go towards the debt. The servant stands now in grave peril, And the parable continues, So the servant fell on his knees before the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. At this juncture, Jesus' audience was surely thinking, Ha! Right! This guy is not going to be able to repay that debt in a million years. Or to be more precise, it would have taken the average worker 200,000 years to earn 10,000 talents. It appears that the servant in this parable is toast. He has no way out of this fix. But the parable continues. And out of compassion for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is one of the most jaw-dropping moments in any of Jesus' parables. There is this staggering debt And the Lord, in the parable, forgives it all. This is a description of what God does for you and me through the forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus offers his perfect life to pay what we owe. As the Apostle Paul put it, when you were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive together with Christ when he forgave us all of our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. The parable up to this point thus offers a powerful illustration of that petition in the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts. But then the parable continues to illustrate the second part of the petition, as we forgive our debtors. Jesus said, But that same servant, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii would be a hundred days' wages, a sizable amount, 
but a tiny fraction of that earlier 10,000 talent debt, and it was an amount that could conceivably be repaid. But the parable continues, and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay me what you owe. Then his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Note that the second servant makes exactly the same plea that the first servant made before the king. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. The servant who's trying to collect the debt could not have the other servant sold into slavery because the debt of 100 denarii was much less than the average price of a slave in that time. So in the parable, he uses the other common technique in that day for debt collection. He has the debtor thrown into prison. The idea of debtor's prison was that the friends and relatives of the debtor would be moved to come up with the money in order to get the guy out of jail. We, of course, have more refined methods for debt collection today, garnishing wages and so forth. But if we leave methods aside, it's important to recognize right here in the parable that the servant was perfectly within his natural legal rights as he demanded payment of the debt that was owed to him. Suppose that we had not heard the first part of the story. We only heard about a servant who was demanding payment of an overdue debt from another. We would say that debts ought to be paid. The first servant was justified in insisting on payment. But in fact, we are outraged by the behavior of this servant as he demands payment from his fellow servant. Why? Because the first part of the story has changed how we now look at things. That servant was the recipient of extraordinary mercy. And we now expect that mercy should be the guiding principle for how he deals with others. But right here, the parable catches us and forces us to confront our own patterns of living. It's very easy to get into a pattern in which we think primarily about our rights and our rightful claims. If other people do not come through with what we think they should be doing and what they owe us, if they damage our rights, if they offend us in some way, we may respond with anger, with condemnation, with demands. But what if we recognize the extraordinary mercy that God has shown to us, the size of our debt that God has forgiven? Then we are moved to live a life in which the guiding principle in our relationships with others is mercy, in which we show to others the mercy that God has shown to us. This will happen if we truly internalize and appreciate the mercy that God has given us. But this is precisely what the main character in the parable does not do. The first servant, having received mercy, takes it all for granted and does not let it affect him any further. Indeed, one could observe that the reason he now demands payment from his fellow servant is because he himself has now been freed from debt. That means he won't owe what he receives back to the king. He can keep it all for himself. Others, seeing his behavior, are appalled, and the parable continues. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their lord all that had taken place. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That question really is directed to all of us. Should we not have mercy on one another 
as God has had mercy on us. Notice that the teaching in this parable is not that God will forgive us if we forgive others. God forgives us first. God forgives us before we have done anything. God forgives us before we deserve anything. We then, hopefully, are inspired to likewise forgive others. But if we refuse to forgive others, we deny and undo the forgiveness that was offered to us by God. In the parable, the servant who refused to forgive his fellow is finally condemned by the king. And the whole parable thus provides a powerful illustration of Jesus' earlier teaching where he said, If you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. But what does forgiveness mean when there is ongoing wrong being inflicted upon us or upon others? It does not mean that we are supposed to simply overlook wrong. Forgiveness is not passivity in the face of evil. The prophets regularly spoke out and condemned the wrongs of their day, and Jesus had sharp words for the scribes and the Pharisees as they acted unjustly. We are called as God's people to actively resist evil. Indeed, one of the questions that we ask everyone joining the United Methodist Church or coming for baptism is, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? A very timely question today. We are called to stand firm against wrong, and thus we support Ukrainians today as they stand courageously against evil. Forgiveness operates on another spiritual level. It is the letting go of resentment and bitterness toward other people and demands for personal restitution. Forgiveness opens the door for reconciliation and new beginnings. Forgiving others can be very difficult, especially when they've wounded us in a major way. But such forgiveness becomes possible when we receive the forgiveness God is pouring out upon us through Christ. The key is that we receive God's forgiveness and then act upon it. It is certainly understandable in Ukraine that President Zelensky is not at a point where he feels he can forgive the Russian invaders who daily are committing war crimes in his country. He suggested that God would never forgive. It may be that Vladimir Putin will never find forgiveness, since in order to be forgiven, we need to repent. We need to acknowledge our sin, turning from evil and turning towards God with penitent hearts so that we may receive God's mercy. And Putin seems far too given over to evil to ever do that. But... But if he did one day repent, if he sincerely repented, the astonishing message of the gospel is that even Putin could be forgiven because the grace of Jesus Christ is big enough to cover all sin. And that is good news for you and me because it means that no matter what, we can experience God's mercy in our own lives. And through us, 
that mercy then can flow to others. As we forgive, we create new possibilities for a better future, and we ourselves are spiritually healed. Last Sunday, in the Ukrainian Catholic Church in Lviv, which also was recognizing Forgiveness Sunday, the bishop in his sermon said, What the Russians are doing is awful. But we have to forgive, not because we are weak, but so that we are not poisoned by this evil. Forgiveness frees us from hatred and enables us finally to be God's people, working for the kind of world in which Christ would lead us to live. Let us pray. Lord, inspire us to open our hearts to that mercy that you are pouring upon us, that forgiveness which cleanses away all sin, that overcomes all distance, O God, between ourselves and you, that would release us from burdens and guilts of the past, that would draw us afresh, O Lord, into life with you, Enable us, indeed, to open our lives so to your grace that we can live in that grace, knowing ourselves to be forgiven by you, knowing that we can share today in life and fellowship with you and be a part of your kingdom that is everlasting. And Lord, as we are drawn into fellowship with you, we pray that you would inspire us to be instruments of your grace for others, where others have harmed and wounded us, O Lord. Inspire us to be be able to, to let that mercy that you've poured upon us flow through us to others. That, Lord, we can be a part of your healing in the world today. That we can overcome divisions. That we can establish new relationships. That we can grow afresh in life together. Lord, our world is full of terrible wrongs. This time we hear wrenching news every day out of Ukraine. We pray, O God, that you would be with the people of Ukraine, giving them strength, comfort, hope, and encouragement. Lord, they might be enabled to stand firm in their own resistance against evil. At the same time, O Lord, we pray that you would be with people in Russia, people so often led astray by falsehoods perpetrated by the propaganda of their government, people who are suffering under what their tyrant leader is doing, people who are in a long-term difficult situation. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in these lands to bring about what is right, to ultimately bring about healing, to bring about the kind of community in which, Lord, you are calling us to live. Enable us, O God, to stand firm in today's world against injustice and wrong, and at the same time to be people who are not full of bitterness but who can show forth your kind of heart, a heart that seeks to bring all people into that life of mercy and fellowship with you. We thank you we can join together as your church to grow together in your grace. We thank you we can reach out in the world in mission and pray especially for our fellow United Methodists this morning at the Sharon Center United Methodist Church. Lead us, Lord, as we indeed would open ourselves to your mercy and let that mercy flow through us. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, and so we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. 
For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.